This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today has performed solo works in over 38 different countries. He serves as the head teacher of juggling at the circus school in Stockholm and has been a guest instructor at every major circus school in the world. He's been awarded the most gold medals in the history of the International Jugglers Association, and he did a command performance for the Queen of England. He holds two shared world records and never misses a chance to explore his art form in the most innovative and original ways possible. Coming up, manipulating Marvel and master of emotional intelligence, Jay Gilligan. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. It's really honestly crazy to, to talk to you because I grew up watching you perform <laughs> and now I'm getting, now I get to have a conversation with you. It's pretty surreal if I think back, you know, 25 years ago telling myself that I'd be talking to you. You must have had a very limited television programming to see me at all because I wasn't on that much. I grew up in Ohio, so yeah, it wasn't, we didn't have a plethora of choices, maybe. Is growing up in Ohio what made you juggle, in a way? Because I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, and sometimes just going outside and getting physical was what, you know, this is pre-cell phone for me, but. So my grandparents, they ran a farm, and my mother built a house next door to her mom's house. So I grew up literally surrounded with, with cornfields, which, you know, looking back on it, in retrospect, was the best thing in the world, right? Because I would just have hours every day that I had to fill doing something. Because yeah, this was obviously pre-internet, uh, pre-cell phones, pre-everything, all the tech. So I just filled my days with practicing. Looking back on it, it's the best thing I could have ever asked for. Well, let me ask you what your relationship with gravity is and when it began. One of my best friends and a great juggler named Luke Wilson, who's sadly no longer with us, he passed away. Uh, a bunch of years ago, but Luke and I, we, we juggled together for many years and he always used to get very annoyed when people would say that jugglers are fighting gravity because he said, without gravity, we can't juggle. And <laughs> it was, he was very pedantic about the, you know, the literal definition of that. So I think it is, um, I do remember him fondly, but of course, like when I hear somebody say that phrase of jugglers are fighting against gravity. It's like, no, we're working with gravity. Gravity's our friend. And <laughs> and I like that. I like that. I like that idea, right? That's a nice little sentiment to embrace and say that we're we're friends with gravity. I mean, as the story goes, the youngest unicycle rider at the time was in my kindergarten class. And since then there's been younger unicycle riders in the world. But at the time when I was growing up and I was in kindergarten, this girl, she was riding unicycles at kindergarten. And I was pretty fascinated by wheels for some reason at that age. And so the unicycle really caught my eye and I just never, I could just never get it out of my, my head. And so there was a local 4-H unicycle club, which was normally centered around agriculture, right? So pretty appropriate for growing up next to a farm. But one of the leaders of this 4-H troop wanted to teach all the kids to ride unicycles. And so that was just a thing in the local community, just completely randomly. And so I started to ride unicycles when I was eight years old. And of course, you want to talk about juggling? Well, I don't have any handlebars on the unicycle. So what am I going to do with my hands? You know, so that, that same year, well, I had to learn how to juggle. So pretty young, but it, it wasn't from seeing a juggler. It wasn't like inspired by, oh, I saw this guy at a school assembly. No, it, it really was just 
not mundane, but just an everyday kind of thing. Well, here's this girl, she's riding a unicycle at, at recess every day. And then there's a local unicycle club. Of course, that's a thing that exists. Like, why would that not exist? You know, I'm, I'm eight years old. You, you don't think anything more of that. And then I learned to ride and it literally was, what am I going to occupy my hands with now that I don't need them to steer the front wheel? And so I got a book from the library and I got the, the Juggling for the Complete Klutz book and learn just from a library book. So no, I, I didn't really have any exposure to jugglers before I, I started juggling. You have a son. How old is he? Yeah, he's seven. But isn't it interesting in a way that you're the definition of what dads do? So all of this play stuff and toys and manipulating and studio time, that's what a dad does to him. Yeah, I did the classic circus dad journey now. So I, I already burned out my son on all the shows and all the circus he wants for the rest of his life, right? So I think from the time, you know, he was six months old or a year old, if he ever did get to watch his iPad, the only videos he had on his iPad that he would watch was jugglers. I mean, I made sure I put other videos on there of Mickey Mouse or whatever. And he would just watch, like I had my show on the iPad and he would just watch it over and over and over again to the point where, you know, at the age of three or four, he was kind of done with juggling and done with circus until he rediscovers it again when he's in his late teens. Isn't that how the wave goes? I don't know. Maybe you know that better. Well, I, I don't know the actual wave. I just know this. Because I have so many peers that do weird things, that my sons were exposed to magicians and to jugglers and to rope spinners. You know, every time somebody would visit our house when I lived in Louisiana, you know, the passing zone were standing on each other's shoulders and dads were physically able to do this crazy stuff. And just about any two of them could come together and juggle six or seven, or I guess it's just something that gets assumed of the sort of offspring, especially because you start with them as a little baby. And I did this with other people's babies, but babies want to stay stiff and you grab them by the feet, you can hold them up and they balance and it's the most phenomenal looking thing, but it's very natural and they feel very safe and they don't have any reason to think you're going to drop them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I mean, the, the other fun thing, like you say, it becomes commonplace, right? These kind of more absurd or outside the box kind of occurrences in everyday life, right? And they just become routine to the point where now if I do a new show or something and he'll, he has to come watch it, you know, like, oh, I have to go see the show now. I'm being forced to see, to see the show, <laughs> which is just, as, which is hilarious because also my main venues or demographics here in Sweden and performing is kids shows in schools and like literally his peers, you know, I'm literally traveling the country performing for seven-year-olds. And then here my son is like, oh, now I'm being forced to have to watch this thing. If I do a new show or something, I'll say afterwards, hey, how, how do you think the show was? And he's like, eh. I don't know. It was, it was okay. Not like in a, I don't care kind of way, but like just a real brutal honesty. And I'll say, okay, but what was wrong? Oh, the last show you did was better. And he'll talk really, you know, concretely why, well, the last show you did this and this and this, and in this show you did this thing. And I'd kind of already seen that before, but in a, you kind of did it in a different way before that was better. I don't know, like he's really astute with his with his observations, you know, very honest assessment. It makes me think of a couple of things with my two sons. One of them was when I used to do my show, The Wonder Bread Years, at the very end of the show when they were little, they would run down on stage when I would take my bow and join me. I had just made some comments about seeing the eyes through the wonder of children and the crowd would go crazy. But why they were running down was there was a bowl of candy on the porch stoop and they knew that they would get a piece of candy uh, and it was unbelievably sweet but the reason that they were in motion was different that reminds me 
obviously the pandemic was really a tragedy in many different ways. One way really personally to me was that it kind of killed my career with my son because of course he does know how to juggle. You know, he was juggling since he was like three years old and we actually had a little passing routine, a little act. So we had like a little 15 minute show together when he was like four or five years old. We were doing gigs, man. We had just started doing like our first five or six shows together. Of course, for me, it was just the, the craziest, coolest thing I'd ever done. I never would have imagined that in my life and never really intended it. But I was like, yeah, hey, this is awesome. Like I'm jogging with my kid and we're doing gigs. But then uh, along came the pandemic and, and kind of killed that momentum. And then he lost interest from there. But every time we would do a show, his payment would be he would get some ice cream. So that became like the holy grail. Like, you know, your kids had the bowl of candy and he got an ice cream after every show. And I remember when I was in that 4-H club doing unicycling, I would practice a lot. Like I said, nothing else to do in the middle of the cornfields. And so there was other kids in the community, right? It was like a 4-H club. So it's like a community driven children, you know, kids activity. And I remember talking to one of the kids one time and he said, oh, if I learned this one trick, I think it was riding the unicycle with one foot. And his mom had told him if he could ride to the end of the driveway at their house using only one foot, he would get a bowl of ice cream. So I ran home and said to my mom, 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 my friend, he gets some ice cream if he learns a new trick. My mom just said, oh, you can have some ice cream anytime you want. You don't have to learn a trick. I said, no, 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 no. Don't do that. You have to let me learn a trick first. So then I, I gave myself rules. I said, I have to do this this certain way to get on the unicycle 100 times and then I could eat a bowl of ice cream. But I really remember my mom just so casually being like, no, you can have ice cream whenever you want, man. Don't don't worry about it. But I really wanted that carrot and the stick kind of experience. Do you still do that in a way with some of your newer work when you're headed to a new show or developing something? Do you put a little bit of a reward at the other end? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. The the show itself really is the occasion. It It is the reward, actually, right? Like the show has become the ice cream. I mean... And like many years ago, I could pinpoint in my artistic process or creative process that the moment I like the best is when you're in the studio and you first get the idea, right? Like that for me is the best moment in the world. And I remember Michael Motion, who's one of my big idols, my favorite juggler, favorite artist ever. And I'm lucky enough to call him a friend and, and get to know him over the years. And I remember he told me that there's that moment in the studio, you get that first spark of the idea, the first iteration of the idea. And he said, everything after that is just, he called it the uh-oh moment. You would do like a new throw or something and you would see the pattern could be possible. You'd see the concept could be possible. And then all of a sudden your brain goes a million miles an hour down that theoretical path that's in front of you. And you just go, uh-oh, you know, oh no, this is going to take some work. This is going to be the next 20 years of my life. But it's in that incubation period where you're fertile, you're exploring how something moves or like you've picked up a new object and you just want to see what's possible. The work you're doing in your new show, Reflex, it has to come like dance does through exploration. You know, a big part of that show, Reflex, was this idea of, of looking at juggling with what could it be if it wasn't just about skill or difficulty or what if I drop? Because I remembered another story when I was a kid, because I was performing since I was really eight years old. As soon as I started unicycling and learning how to juggle, I, I started performing. And that was just kind of out of, I guess, out of habit, because that's what the, the 4-H group did. You would, you would put on exhibitions. It was just kind of ingrained from the beginning of like, 
this is a skill, this unicycling or juggling is a skill that you show to other people. I was probably around 12 or 13 doing a bunch of the blue and gold banquets. Did you ever do those? Yeah, Boy Scouts. Yeah, Cub Scouts, right. So I really distinctly remember this one moment really imprinted in my brain where after the show, one of the adults came up to me and said, well, that was a really great performance. It was really, really, really fun. Um, I noticed that you juggled seven balls. That's so impressive. That must be really hard to do, they said. And honestly, it had never occurred to me that seven balls was necessarily that hard to do, partly because I didn't think I was that good of a juggler. And I also knew the hours that I had drilled in, you know, out in the backyard in the cornfield to learn seven balls. So in one way, like, I guess it was hard because I invested a bunch of hours, but on the other hand, I could do it. And I was like 13 years old. So it wasn't like some sort of unobtainable goal in my mind. It was just like, oh yeah, I, I earned it. I sweated and, and put in the hours to learn it. But also I knew at the time, and I couldn't articulate this when I was 13, I didn't do it in the show to impress anybody. And so when the adult had said, oh, that's so impressive. It must be really difficult to do that. I was like, oh, I, I guess it's difficult. I don't know. Like I learned it and I'm nothing special. <laughs> like that was kind of my attitude. And so then I knew when I was 13 that I thought seven balls just looked cool, but I couldn't until later on when I was maybe 18, 19, 20 years old, I couldn't really start to articulate what I meant by that. And basically you could start to say that it's a certain shape that you don't find anywhere else in nature or you know in the universe and it's a moving, constantly changing pattern, and there's a rhythm to it, and there's a dimension to it. And also that the seven ball stops when I stop. And I was somehow fascinated with that too, that it only lasted as long as I could make it last. It's a kinetic sculpture that you're the engine behind, and then either a, a slight difference in where it drops or speed or, I mean, there's a lot of variables in it. 13 year old me could only use the words and say, it looks cool. I mean, today I still think it looks really cool. I vaguely remember being at an international jugglers conference where they had asked me a couple different times to host a big public show or something. But I vaguely remember you coming on as a junior juggler and winning some early trophies and prizes. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you actually introduced me in 1988 in Denver, but I think I was doing juniors in the International Jugglers Association competition that year. But that year, I don't think I won any prizes. I think I got like 12th place or something. But, but that's good. It's good, right? In 1988, get 12th place and only, only place to go is up, right? I like even people listening now, they're like, why do I want to listen to two guys talk about juggling? But it is very, very interesting to me what kind of an art form it is. Because there are different kinds of people. And I saw numbers guys that are sort of MIT genius guys that only cared about, can I get 10 rings? Can I get to this place where the numbers matter? And it's physics and it's, it's speed and it's height. But there were also very athletic jugglers. So there was your Albert Lucases and other people that these guys were athletes in a way. And then there were kind of entertainers where the it didn't matter how much as long as they were fun and funny. So there's kind of different subcultures within it. But what I love about juggling is you have to be able to do it. It is the quintessential question of, oh, you're a juggler. How many can you juggle? And no matter what number you say, the next question is, show me or, you know, prove it or do it or whatever. How many can juggle? I can juggle five. Okay, do it. I mean, honestly, that's one thing I really love about juggling is that it's concrete. You throw the ball and you either catch it or you drop it. There's no ambiguity there. That's something I've really explored a lot in terms of the presenting, you know, performing juggling for an audience. For example, I think that's one of the problems when you're going to have any sort of circus skill inside of a theatrical play, 
like let's say you're going to do you know William Shakespeare Hamlet or something and in Hamlet you're juggling five balls well are you pretending to juggle five balls are you pretending to be talking to a skull it's like we all have the suspension of disbelief in theater right but then circus is concrete so it's like a really weird cognitive dissonance almost i mean the only time it really works when you're doing circus skills or juggling in a play is if the characters go see a circus maybe i'll tell you what there was an amazing rendition of Pippin done a number of years back where it was littered with circus skills and it was they were extraordinary artists and that somehow married the two things together and i wonder this is kind of a odd question but do you dream in motion like because of the work you do do you see a lot of things in an active way when you're dreaming absolutely yeah sometimes you'll wake up and be like ah what was that show i just did more often than not it's there's an anxiety of 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 your waking up and you're thinking like i did this great thing and now i don't remember what it was and there there's just like the yeah the angst of of losing something you never knew you had. In the comedy world, I call that the Bermuda Triangle when you're walking to something and you have a funny joke and you don't write it down and you get back to your office and you're like, the best joke just went into the triangle. Again, it goes back to that idea of, like you said, Pippin. Yeah, I, I saw the, the revival of Pippin and I absolutely the circus was integrated really well and there was a nice balance there. And I think part of that though is the audience kind of knows, they have the expectation of, the jumping off point of what level we're talking about here in terms of fantasy or real life. And again, if, if you're only presenting these things as I'm going to juggle five balls and the only value is that I catch all of them and you believe that I catch all of them, there's no other idea right going on presenting this juggling of like, you should watch me do this because you can't do it. And it's a hard skill to learn. Then I think it's really harder to integrate it into something else. And I remember I saw a magic show in Paris. It was a bunch of jugglers doing a magic show. And it was kind of weird because on the surface, you think this is going to be amazing. Like it's a bunch of jugglers who also do magic. So it's two art forms combined, right? It's just, it's just going to be better than one art form. But in the end, if you see a ball float around the stage and kind of levitate, then when you actually do real juggling of like seven balls, it's, you're just like, whatever, who cares? Like I just saw a, a ball float. It's impossible. There was a guy named Justin Case. Do you know that artist? He's a bicyclist and oh, he's an amazing street performer. I saw him in Vancouver at a street festival and I don't kind of really want to spoil his whole thing. It really engaged the audience and brought them all in. I mean, just a giant circle. And, and I'm always impressed by street performers because it's the only art where you sell the ticket after the show's over. And then it's like, pay what you want. So if you're not working down to the very last minute of it, the very last dollar going in the hat, it, they just disappear. They run off as fast as they can. But if you endear yourself to them and they love it, they want a piece, they want to invest in you in a way. One thing I had growing up in terms of this idea of integrating different disciplines or skills, I distinctly remember when I was a teenager, 15 or 16 years old, I had a friend who said, oh, hey, I, I can't hang out right now. I got to go practice. I got a show coming up next weekend. And I thought, oh, that's cool. And yeah, 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 I got to go. I got to go work. I got to go practice. So he went over to the corner of the room and started drilling his five ball cascade because he wanted to do five balls in the show. And I thought, oh, that's cool. He's going to juggle five balls in the show. And he's, he's into that. And, you know, he thinks that's going to make a good show. That's awesome. I can relate to that. And then I went to see a show the next week. And he told eight minutes of really bad jokes. And the five ball juggling lasted, what, like five seconds? <laughs> and I noticed this my whole life where it was like people would think they're doing one thing when they're actually doing another thing, right? So 
this idea that I'm going to go work on my show. It's a juggling show. But what's the main takeaway for the audience? The main takeaway of the audience is this guy's character, his comedy, his relationship to the audience. And it was so funny that he was like, I'm going to go work on my show. And he would stand in the corner of the room with the five balls instead of being like, hey, I got to go work on my show now. I'm going to go, I'm going to go take a comedy writing class. You know what I mean? No, I do. And I think what happens, though, and this is probably unfortunate about juggling, but dropping equates to failure. And both you and I know that's not true. That's inevitable. And it really is how do you deal with it and how do you integrate it? How do you make it improvisational? How do you make it funny? How do you make it into a big win where the applause is even greater? There's so many things about a drop that make it a unique show. It makes it a story that they could say, I was at that one show where you finally got it. But when you first learn, you're crestfallen to have anything hit the ground. Like I said, you know, Juggling is concrete. You catch it or you don't. There's no ambiguity there. Oh, did he almost catch the ball? Like it still means the ball fell down, right? And so this idea of dropping, like you said, it, it equates to failure. Um, but it's just what is that definition of failure then? And you're pushing that problem onto another word. You're saying, okay, dropping is not the problem, but failure is a problem. But then how do we define failure? So for example, there was one show I did with a drummer 10, 15 years ago. It was an hour-long improv, and it really was truly an improv, for real. The only rule is that we go as long as we can before we can't keep going until we fall over, basically, of exhaustion. And uh, we, so we went really hardcore every, every show. We, did, we toured it for about two years. But the thing I, on that show I tried to do, I don't know if it was successful mentally for me, at least I, I got something out of this fantasy where I said, instead of being punished for the mistakes let's celebrate the successes, right? So instead of being like, I saw this juggler and he dropped twice, you could say, I saw this juggler and he caught 5,216 times. If you could try to kind of twist that definition with the audience and be like, hey, I know you're all waiting for me to drop here, but what if you were just waiting for me to catch everything and be able to take these bigger leaps and risks in terms of what I would put on stage in front of an audience in terms of technique? I've been working a lot with orchestras and chamber music festivals and classical musicians and do, doing juggling. And in one way, being a juggler at a chamber music festival is the best thing in the world because you're the funny, weird thing. And it's just hard to mess that up. You know, you can just go out and do the simplest thing. And they're like, oh, it's not it's not music. This is really funny. But the thing at a chamber music festival, man, that's a particular audience, you know. They're there to hear Bach and they, they're just waiting for that one wrong note, right? And they don't want to hear that wrong, one wrong note because they know the Bach piece. And in the same way with juggling, it's like they just know that you catch the ball or you drop it. You've been exploring musical juggling by visually mapping and sampling juggling sounds. Can you describe that process or what we're seeing in the show when you do that? So that goes back to this idea again of like when I was... 13 at the Cub Scout banquet and seven balls is hard. Wait, why am I, why would I, why would I show you something hard? Like I want to show you something else. And what could that other thing be? When I was 18 years old, I had never seen dance before and I didn't understand it at all. I thought, well, these people are jumping around, but they don't have any juggling balls or any, they're not riding a unicycle. This isn't a trick. But then I started to figure out, okay, aesthetics, composition, choreography, expression. So I was like, oh, okay, I don't get any of these things, but I'm learning what, you know, these words at least. One thing I started to understand was that I kind of looked at juggling as a form of visual music. So we think that we have, you know, notes for the ears, a tone, a, a melody that you can hear. I thought, oh, juggling's a little bit like a visual melody. 
And so over the years, I've really been fascinated with this idea of, it sounds very pretentious to say, but painting the air with, you know, making a painting in the air with objects or something, but a visual composition for sure. Are you actually, let's say, physically writing sheet music for juggling? Or do you just, you get a feeling, okay, this height and this distance makes this sound? Sometimes I am. I mean, one fascinating story is that I, I talked to Paul Majid of the Flying Karamaza brothers. He once told me a story where he said that because when the Flying Karamaza brothers started juggling, they were all previously musicians before they juggled. And they didn't know any better. They didn't know any other jugglers. They just learned to juggle on their own. So the first show they ever did was an hour-long show, and they actually wrote it as sheet music before they ever juggled it. So they sat down around a table because they were all musicians, and they're like, well, we're going to make a song, you know, like a visual song. So, like, how, how does that work with music? Well, we sit around the table and we imagine What's it going to sound like? What's it going to look like? And then they, they had a notation system they had made up themselves and they wrote the juggling score before they ever did it. Yeah. And then essentially there was a series of scenes. A lot of stuff with my work was very different than that. But you have an imagination, this idea that this is what's going to happen and you're still trying to make that happen. But here's what happened with me with the music thing specifically. Back when I started to learn how to juggle, everybody told me you have to use jazz music with no lyrics because lyrics are distracting. And if you use music with lyrics, then people are going to focus on that and be confused if they're singing about a red rose and you don't have a red rose. So no lyrics. It has to be kind of jazz. You have to wear this, this vest and this black dress pants and a white dress shirt and a colorful vest, right? And I kind of realized after a while, with I had a little group of friends, like Sean McKinney was one of my great friends. And he was one of these guys that came out and just used pop music, you know, whatever of the, of the day. He used Footloose. And people were like, you know, the old timers were like, that's not, you can't do that. That's not professional. That's not performing. This idea of using jazz music, this idea of wearing these clothes, that was mimicking a certain time period, that, like vaudeville, right? And the thing is with jazz music, that wasn't jazz music. That was contemporary music, man. That was the pop music of the time, right? And so that Sean McKinney came in and said, hey, I'm going to copy the past by being in the present <laughs> was pretty cool. So then, so then we had this idea, we're going to juggle to pop music now. We're going to reject this kind of copying of the past in that way. But in the conceptual sense, we really wanted to be of our time. And uh, so we used pop music, but I got so sick of it, Pat. I got really annoyed of having to do an extra throw to go into the chorus or like two extra throws before the bridge came. And I was really like trapped in this for years. I was just so sick of the music kind of controlling the juggling if I wanted them to sync up instead of the other way around. So then of course, the first thing I did was get live musicians who followed me. That's when, when I saw Chris Cremo in uh, uh, Las Vegas doing his top hat stuff and the drummers and everybody were following him. I was like, how is it possible that they do this every time? Well, it's because the juggling is leading and the musician is is really racing after it. So that was such a luxury, right? Like I, I did a couple of years where I had a, a little band, but in, then of course that's expensive, you know, <laughs> to have musicians. So after a while it was like I would get some gigs and I couldn't bring my band with me. So I thought, oh, maybe there's a way I can start to use this electronic music that's coming out now, these electronic instruments with maybe motion capture sensors and stuff. I have some electronics that some friends of mine built me and they allow the music to basically continue as long as I need it to continue. So if there's a mistake in the juggling, you know, the, the worst thing is when you have something choreographed to music and you drop and then you're counting this music in your head at the same time as editing your routine as you go like, nope, I'm going to cut that thing. I'm going to jump in here. And then, you know, invariably that makes you 
just have another mistake, right? And it just <laughs> snowballs. You're trying to stick the dismount because you know that big fanfare is coming up right at the end. When I'm not performing with a musician, I have a little electronic system that lets the music just continuously go until I want to change it. First of all, it relieves the pressure on me to make mistakes because I can make mistakes and it doesn't look like maybe a mistake, but also it allows me to, yeah, just be flexible and like continue something longer if I feel like it or go shorter if I feel the audience needs to move on or whatever. So it's not being locked into like a recorded soundtrack. And now you're an extraordinary performer, but when did you make this leap to teaching or consulting in a way that made you a professor of juggling? It's a kind of a funny story. The real behind the scenes scoop, man, was that I was living with a juggling teacher who got fired for sleeping with the students. <laughs> so, so, he, so he came home one day and said... By the way, weirdest <laughs> sentence we've had on the podcast ever. Thank you. No, so he came home one day and was just like, oh yeah, I got fired today. They need a teacher. Can you go in next week? And then by the way, here's some advice of what not to do. Right. I was like, oh, thanks, because right. that, that wasn't obvious from the beginning. No, but at first I started teaching for one week and then uh, one week a year. You know, it was just that one week to fill in until they found someone else, right? And then I came back the next year for a couple weeks and the next year for three weeks. And then eventually I stopped pretending that I was leaving in between and I just stayed. But I mean, the thing, the thing with me when I first started teaching was like, I was just teaching tricks because that's the limit of what I knew that we were going to do. Hey, what tricks are you working on? Oh, your five ball multiplex or you know your four club back cross is cool. But then what happened in these circus schools is you start getting put into a class where they would have a three hour chunk of time, and you'd have a Diablo juggler, a, an antipatist like juggling with their feet, and a club juggler, and you have three hours with these people. And you could of course separate them up and say, hey, there's three people, there's three disciplines, there's three hours. We do one hour each. But I thought that's so boring, and I thought the best. The best moments were when the foot juggler and the diabloist would actually have a conversation and say, oh, when I throw this thing with my feet, you know, and the diabloist would say, oh, yeah, maybe I could kind of do that with my, my stick and my string, right? Like there was some sort of synergy there. And so then that's when it really turned into this conceptually based teaching method that wasn't specific to technique. So you could go have these master classes in Paris or, you know, in Berlin, and you would get 20 students in the room. And they'd all be at different levels of technique. So let's talk about how that applies to creativity in general, because creativity in many cases is making chaos into order and seeing patterns, which again, juggling is really built on pattern. It feels like you're playing in real open creativity as you introduce a new object or a new motion or momentum or some different kind of artistry. Absolutely. And I think a big part of that was at first kind of define everything. And I know a lot of people hate to define things because they think that defining things limits things. But for me, defining something means that you know where you are so that you can go further. That's the only reason to define something. It's not to stay stagnant and it's not to say, this is this definition is locked down. So the first thing was, okay, what is juggling? <laughs> what are we doing? What do we mean by the word juggling? I mean, I had a little bit of a, a crisis at one point because the thing is, here in Sweden, I teach at the circus school, and it's state-funded. I mean, it's taxpayers' money, and I'm being paid to teach juggling. And for a while there, I thought it was hilarious that nobody could really tell me what juggling was, that I'm being paid by the state to teach something that nobody can really define. We all have a vague idea of what it is, but to drill it down and say, what is actually juggling? And a lot of people will come up with ideas like it's juggling is organizing objects in space and time. And it's like, well, that's kind of everything that we do. Like when you're driving a car, you're organizing a big object in space and time. Like you don't want to crash. We would have all these metaphors, but like 
I really wanted to have a personal definition that I could at least work with inside myself of what are we doing here? So I tried to map juggling into some sort of definition, but not because I wanted to know what there was, but to know what was missing. I thought about it as like a globe and you have like the continent of ball juggling and you have the island of ring juggling and there's an ocean in between. And I was like, what's that ocean? Like what's in between those two disciplines? Like, is it a prop that's a hybrid ball ring or is it a certain technique of like how to throw a ring like a ball? I don't know. So it was this idea that we could map uh, juggling into some sort of definition, not to stick with that and say, this is what it is and lock it down, but rather to jump off from that point and to try to discover what else there could be. It seemed to me growing up and watching performers, they typically said, here's three clubs, here's three rings. So it seemed like everything was episodic and it was like, turn your back, go pick up your silks, do that. And that was the only variable was, is this thing heavier? Is this thing lighter? Is this thing on fire? In the end of the day, juggling is an abstract art form. If you want to tell a story about democracy and love and the universe, you're better to pick storytelling or poetry or making a play instead of doing a juggling act about concrete theme because juggling is still an abstract activity. One of the mandates or like kind of the umbrella statement of the circus school is that it's a university of the arts. And they get a bachelor of the arts, kind of the mission statement of the schools is we are producing artists. So they, they'd use the word art and kind of inherent in this idea of art is uh, the idea of expression. And I think when I meet students in the class, it's very intimidating. I mean, I get it. It also is intimidating to me before I figured this out, which was, what do you mean express something with my juggling? I'm catching the ball or I'm not. What, what can that express? Well, but also the storytelling. It's interesting because uh, I was a joke writer. I like jokes. But as I begin to learn how to write plays or write sitcoms or write other things, I realized the jokes were decorations and the structure was much more important. What's happening to these people? How are they growing? What situation are they in? If a joke doesn't fit that, episodically throwing a joke into it or just independently having that in there feels out of place. But if it's purpose-driven or it develops something about the character, it elevates everything. There's such a ingrained habit of, of being a juggler where you, you need everything to be as technically challenging and as creatively obtuse as possible in one way. You always want to make the trick harder. You don't want to just do it normally. You want to do it with crossed arms or with another ball. Or, but at the end of the day, you have to realize in certain rhythms and beats of the performance, what level is the audience actually paying attention to? I mean, even for me, I've, I've been realizing this lately. I'm making a new act to put into my show Reflex because I'm going to take it on tour later this year. So much of juggling and circus and physical performance skills, they're so much more fun to do than to watch. I mean, I'm not saying they're not fun to watch, but I mean, if you compare the enjoyment of me doing this thing versus you watching me do this thing, many times it's really disproportionate that it's way more fun for me to do it than for you to watch it. You mentioned Reflex. I think in 2022, coming out of the pandemic, you were doing this in Brooklyn and I had it on my radar and I was hoping to see the premiere and I, I ended up not getting to New York at that time. But Hideaway Circus is presenting your show Reflex. It's going on tour in 2023 and 2024. Where is it going to? Right now, we just have a U.S. tour kind of hitting, I think, both coasts and both north and south. But you are unraveling 4,000 years of juggling in this show, exploring the storytelling of juggling and gravity. It's a kind of magnum opus, I'd say, and it definitely takes stories from my, my 35 years career. The other main theme of the show is the ambition of human space travel. 
so I kind of <laughs> I kind of relate the history of juggling to the to the history of the space program and and some of those parallels. Which yeah, it's just because space is a big interest of mine. My dad worked for NASA a little bit, and I grew up with those things in my house. It had a big impact on me. I really try to take some of these concepts, weave them into the show, but actually have them impact the juggling in a in a real concrete way. So, for example, I talk a lot about Halley's Comet at one point and this idea about comets as they fall apart as they travel through space and how and why that happens. And uh, the next time that Halley's Comet will be vis visible here from Earth. And then I end with saying, you know, in the year 2061, when we look up into the night sky, this is what we might see. And I've made these juggling balls that are basically different layers of materials. So it's, it's like 16 layers of, of concentric kind of wrapping ribbons and feathers and confetti and, and surprises and glitter inside these balls that as you juggle them, they decompose like the tail of a comet until they eventually just disappear. So you just juggle them and you just keep juggling and juggling until you get to the center and the center is just made of confetti. So then they just through the act of juggling itself, they're unraveling and then they just disintegrate into nothing, which is what happened to the comet eventually. So you're taking this pretty random outer space and juggling, like what, what's going to go on there? and trying to put it into a real concrete technique and not just a fantasy of like a metaphor or something, but an actual event that would change the juggling technique. And now you're talking about the future of juggling in a way, just in terms of trying to be innovative and find new ways to do movement and stuff. But you did explore making a juggling machine, but how many iterations of this have you tried to make? So I don't know if you've ever heard of Claude Shannon, but he was a famous mathematician at MIT and he invented this juggling machine that bounces three balls off a drum. And the coolest thing about the machine is there's no feedback loop. It's purely mechanical. It's, a, it's an automata. So everything had to just be built correctly. So there's no you know, sensors or eyes that make corrections. It's just like he just built it correctly and then three balls juggle. And the, and the drum propels it back to a height where it can be restored back into the pattern. Exactly. Yeah. So he used these little steel ball bearings. And so then the drum head gave a little trampoline surface. So then the balls are just bouncing off this drum in a cascade. And I thought, wow, it'd be so cool to have a machine that did that in the air, like the traditional three ball cascade in the air instead of bouncing them off the floor. So I've been working on that. Well, let's say my whole life, basically. <laughs> and I had variations with like hair dryers and ping pong balls, like kind of shooting two hair dryers shooting at each other with big cones, funneling the balls back into the nozzles and baseball pitching machines set up facing each other and like tennis pitching machines facing each other. Man, it's just, it's just, it's really hard, Pat. <laughs> Here's the part why I'm sort of laughing is once you get, once you bring the price point down on this machine where we're all going to need one in our house, how practical has the effort been? <laughs> so the thing is really, you know, with all the electronics today, the challenge really has been to not use sensors and to not use any sort of camera tracking, motion tracking, or like robotics. So really to keep it a purely mechanical machine, we could say. I talked to technicians at Cirque du Soleil who wanted, you know, $30,000 to make one. And I still had to sign a paper saying that I would pay them even if it didn't work and things like this. So that was really fun. But finally, there was a guy named Steven who made a machine like this. And I got another fabricator, a friend of mine, Drew, who works for Cirque du Soleil out in Las Vegas. We collaborated together with Steven and Drew and made a machine for Reflex. Drew kind of tweaked the design a little bit better and, and more reliable. But I think Steven's machine, he really wanted it to break the three ball juggling record, which was kind of fun, which I think is 13 hours. And I think his machine went, I don't know what it is, up to 12 hours or something without dropping. 
you would think that once you had a machine that could juggle the three balls, that 10 hours or 12 hours doesn't matter, but it actually does. Like the, the crazy thing about making the juggling machine with no sensors is you actually have to build a flexibility into the design to account for that margin of error. And that way I really think about Drew, my designer and fabricator who made this machine for me. And in one way he's performing in my show every night, but it's a form of time travel, right? Like he spent thousands of hours in his workshop tweaking the design and making it work. And then every night I just get to go on stage and press go. This machine can be seen in the Reflex show on tour. If they wanna know more about that, reflexshow.com is where tour dates and things will happen. Also, I want to mention you're, you have a contemporary circus company in Stockholm, so there's also a website for that, which is called Capsule, K-A-P-S-E-L, so it, and that's .se, which is a Sweden extension. Do you want to leave us with any parting juggling words or creativity words that will kind of get people a jumpstart into their week? I did have one fat last thing I wanted to say or, or ask you about too, because you, you're also a juggler. You know, it's like Sean McKinney used to say, juggling is hard work. And I have to say that I've been juggling for 35 years. And in one way, juggling never gets any easier. You can juggle longer. You can, you can do more tricks. But when you go up on stage, you still got to catch the ball. And that moment is still absolute, right? And it just doesn't get easier or harder. I mean, it just is what it is. And I just wondered if you had any experience with that in your juggling or with your other sort of endeavors of uh, comedy writing or performing. I would equate it to golf. Nobody can master golf. The margin of error at the hitting end <laughs> creates a bigger drama on the other end. So it's very much like juggling, right? Which is once you start throwing higher or spreading your arms more or trying to spin around and make it, it's a variable you can't master. You can get good at it and you can know what to do in a, in a pinch. But then for all the practicing you do, the moment you enter an audience to the equation, then the emotions of the performer and the stakes, it's as a stand-up comic, I don't know how many shows I've done that were great. The minute somebody says, we're going to tape it, you begin to think about, oh, how do I look on the tape? I wonder if this is going well. And then you take yourself out of the timing of the moment. I mean, not, not all performers do this, but typically it's like now you're walking out through the Tonight Show curtain and for some reason you see audience watching the television set and you think, oh, I'm in charge of television for seven minutes all over the world. Like you you completely mess with yourself. And some people get to a point where those stakes don't really matter. I would say this, I feel like what the audience wants when they see a performer is they want somebody who is taking them on a hayrack ride and knows where it's going. They wanna see a certain amount of confidence even if the character is playing a bumbling idiot. But the minute you show stress or you think, this is gonna be a disaster. They smell your fear and they think this bus is going to go right in the ditch. But they want you to succeed. The minute they introduce a person, they go, great, we want this to be great. Juggling and all performing, it is what it is, right? It doesn't get any easier. It's just, it's just the honesty of the situation, it's the context. But like you said, the audience wants you to succeed. So you just have to, you have to remember both those things all the time. And I would say authenticity to me, in any kind of mistake in theater, if your microphone goes out, if you get mad at the sound people, it's exactly the opposite of what the audience wants. 
They want you in an unflappable way to say, hey, hey, come on out and give this a change. And you want to talk to me, tell them a little something about yourself. The microphone gets changed. You get right back in and you are a hero. It's like, hey, let's hear it for that technician. He never gets recognized and now he's out here. I'm telling you, that is so much better than a, a performer glowering at the spotlight guy and getting all worked up. You know, that, that I think it might have been in Denver. Not, I'm not sure. But one of those shows that I was hosting where I knew... I wasn't a good enough juggler to be on the show. I'm a basic juggler. And some great Russian juggler is in the audience. This is a guy that does 13 and is, you know, in every Guinness Book of World Records. And I'm hosting the show and I'm like, I'm not juggling in front of this dude. Forget about it. But I talked to the spotlight operators and it was amazing. 20 minutes of rehearsal before we opened the doors and I had them juggling spotlights against the curtain where I was pretending with my hands. I did nothing. I just was kind of miming this, right? I remember this. But they worked really hard in those 20 minutes because they were showing off their spotlight skills. And so then I would toss one up on the curtain, it would land on my forehead, and then the other would land on top of that. The audience was giving me credit for basically conducting two spotlight operators. That was awesome. I remember seeing that live, man. I was there. It was so great, but it was also born out of an improvisational desire to still do something with a nod to juggling, but without the humiliation of of trying to perform in front of the world's greatest jugglers. Absolutely. I love it, man. That was great. And I, in which I consider you to be one of them. So I want the audience to remember Jay Gilligan and to watch out for the Reflex show as it comes through. This is a great. I really appreciate all the amazing images you create with your juggling and that visual experience you give the audience and really the storytelling that goes with it. So thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for the conversation, Pat. It was great. In November... Be on the lookout for Jay's show, Reflex, which is heading to Midland, Michigan, Tampa, Florida, Springdale, Arkansas, Bellingham, Washington, Madison, Wisconsin, and West Bloomfield, Michigan. Visit reflexshow.com for tickets. Thanks for joining us. We know you have many choices in the podcast universe, so we appreciate you investing the time to be part of our creative community. Creativity in Captivity is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with support from co-producer Tucker Hazel, Boy Genius. This episode was edited by the Right Honorable Hannah Dykstra. Original theme song written and sung by Maya Sharp. Additional support and technical jiggery-pokery provided by Diane Johansson, Delilah Lovejoy, and Tony Deo of Ghost Runner Records. If you are inclined to rate, review, and share this podcast with your friends that need a weekly creative boost, we would be forever grateful. If you'd like to check out our extensive listening library of creative conversations, please visit creativityincaptivity.fun. That's right. I said dot fun. It's like a recess with the fun after the first period. See you next week. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostly stage, a circus of uncertainty. You're